I am so happy to be here this morning with all of you. And I'm also really excited about the topic today. Um, some may consider this one of those evangelistic series topics because there's some topics that it seems like we only talk about in evangelistic series. But as Christians, why not talk about the foundations of our faith, right? Why not be renewed in our faith in God's plan for our lives? So this morning we're going to be revisiting a very basic concept common to most of Christianity in a way that I hope makes it fresh and new to you today. So before we begin, I'm going to ask you to join me as we ask God's presence, God's guidance to be here with us. So if you would bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise your name um, just for the Sabbath. It's such a blessing to be able to be renewed in spirit, uh, to rest physically, to commune with friends, and to be blessed by your spirit. As we are here in your church, Father, I want to ask that you would please bless this time the minutes that we have to read your word, to think about your word, I ask that it would have an impact in our lives, that your spirit would speak to us, and that we would see um, new truths of you. And we ask this guidance, we ask this mercy because of your son, and in his name, amen. So baptism is a very unique Christian tradition. Um, if you really think about it objectively, it's grown people submerging other people into bodies of water, coming out, making a big deal about it. You know, you can admit with me that maybe if you had no background to Christianity, it would kind of be an odd practice, right? I know when I was a kid, one of the things that I would wonder the most as I would see people getting baptized at church was, you know, what happens when they are submerged down there in the water? You know, this moment of, of, of unknown, you know, in my mind, they rise back up, you know, they're all excited, everyone's happy, you know, amens are said, there's hugging, and this person, I would always wonder, what is different about this person now that they've been baptized? What happened in their lives? How is their life going to be different from that moment on? And it was something that just made me so curious and made me look forward to my own baptism a lot because I was just curious about experimenting and for myself what effect baptism had on my life. For many, for many people, baptism can mean different things. For some, it's just kind of a step you have to take in order to join a church. For others, it's something they look forward to. It's something very special. It marks a, a change in their lives, a new beginning, a new, um, a new hope for the future. For others, you know, it can be something a little mystical. For some, it can just be a symbol. I, I found a story that was amusing. Uh, King Angus um, of Ireland, he was baptized by by Patrick, which we know commonly as St. Patrick. But it turns out that he was actually a really powerful missionary for God um, in those regions. But anyhow, he was baptizing King Angus, and they were in this um, baptismal pool, and Patrick had a very sharp staff with him that accidentally pierced the king's foot, slightly though. And the king didn't budge, he didn't say anything. The, the, the water started to turn a more yellow, uh, sorry, a red color, and Patrick didn't notice, and at the end of it all, finally when he notices, he asks Patrick, you know, what? why didn't you say anything? I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And the king said, well, I just thought that was part of the ritual. And so in that way, it kind of illustrates the fact that for some people, baptism can be a ritual, something that you just have to go through 
and the magical properties or whatever properties of the, of the ritual are going to have an effect on you, and that's it, you know? But we know that there's more to baptism than that. And my, the first half of what we're going to do today is just going to trace briefly kind of the biblical concepts, the biblical principles of baptism, and then we're going to try to move in a slightly different direction. So when you think of baptism, what portions of the scriptures do you think of usually? Jesus' baptism. Would, you, would, would it be okay for me to say that baptism is mostly a New Testament concept? It's, it's actually a trick question because it is. It is a New Testament concept, especially when you look at it as a, a sacrament that was instituted by Christ. But nevertheless, when Jesus, or when John the Baptist, we know John the Baptist was baptizing before Jesus, right? When Jesus talks about baptism, he's actually not talking about something that is completely foreign to the Jewish people. It wasn't something that to them was completely new. It was based on things that were familiar to Jewish history and Jewish story. And for that reason, before we are able to discuss baptism from a New Testament concept, I first we need to understand what baptism would mean to a Jewish person that is listening to Jesus, that is listening to John the Baptist, and then later on to the apostles. So if we go back in time to one of the first instances in which an Old Testament story is kind of used as a metaphor for baptism, we find that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. And if Josiah could... Um, Flip the slides for me to just Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Here we're seeing uh, the Genesis of ca- account of Noah and his family. They're being delivered from a time of sin. And what is the mechanism of deliverance for these people, for Noah and his family? What mechanism did God use to deliver Noah from a time of sin? An ark. And what was the cleansing uh, Water. Water was a cleansing property that cleansed the word, world from sin. And we read in 1 Peter 3, 20 to 21, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by what? By water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is a very critical New Testament verse in which the apostle is looking back at the time of Noah and he identifies the experience of Noah as a type of baptism. Okay? So in order, as we're going to go through these stories, we're going to go through them very efficiently, but I want you to kind of look at certain themes. There's something that happens, there's a condition that occurs before water and there's a condition after water. There is a need for cleansing before the water, and there is a state of cleansing after the water. So if you can imagine Noah, you know, he lives in a time in which, you know, great evil prevailed. Um, Mankind just allowed the lower essence of man to rule free or to reign free. And so you can imagine all the persecution and the the insults that were hurled at him. And so this water comes and creates a new opportunity, a new rebirth, so to speak. And the apostle compares this to the cleansing away of the filth of us when we are baptized. So just think of those ideas. Interestingly, the concept of a flood is common to many cultures around the world. You know, we have like the Gilgamesh story, you the great in China, and I have two pictures coming up that kind of 
give an idea that even in secular cultures or pagan cultures, the, the concept of water being a cleansing agent is very common. Furthermore, we have another story in which there's kind of this water that provides a cleansing um, property. Can you guys think of going along in Genesis, another instance where water served that purpose? Crossing of the Red Sea. Excellent. So this is another story. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. And think about the state in which the Israelites found themselves at this time. The Israelites are where? Egypt. What, is, what, what conditions would they have been living in in Egypt? They were in bondage. They were being persecuted. They were being oppressed by an evil ruler, right? And then all of a sudden, God's answer to this oppression is water. Let's go to 1 Peter, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not, ye, I would not that ye be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So again, this is a New Testament verse that is looking at an Old Testament idea, Old Testament story, and, and showing how it can be a type of the baptism experience in the New Testament. So once again, the people of Israel are being oppressed. They're being persecuted. They reach the point in which... I think we're getting... There we go. Thanks, man. This is the Red Sea. They reach a point in which they had an army behind them, right? They're facing death. They're facing no future ahead of them. And what is God's answer to their problem? A baptism by water. They go in. All of their oppression, all of the sin that is, is behind them gets drowned and they emerge to a new hope, a new future. And I think that's a concept that we can all agree is, is very basic and very common to the idea of baptism. Furthermore, though, there's another instance in which the Israelites use water as a cleansing agent. And this we find in Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready again the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all people upon Mount Sinai. And even though the word baptism isn't used in this verse, God is here saying, these people, you need cleansing. You need your sins to be put away. And how does God choose, how, uh, what method does God choose in order to prepare his people to sanctify them in order to meet God? He uses water. Very good. Additionally, there's another instance in the, New Test in the Old Testament, right? Can you think of water being used for cleansing? This we can read about. I'm just going to go really quickly through all this. This we can read about in Exodus chapter 30, verses 18 to 21. And it says, Thou shalt make a laver or a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, of wash withal. And thou shalt put in between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and you shall put water therein, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereof, or thereat, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burnt offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. 
Interestingly, though, in this instance, you know, similar concept, same idea, water is being used to wash away sin in order to prepare a person to minister before God, to stand in God's presence. Nevertheless, there's a, a new characteristic to this, and that is that it's done every single time that that person approaches God's presence. So it's not a one-time event that these priests are, do, are, are being washed, but they, they did have a one-time consecration in the beginning, but every single time they go into the tabernacle, every time they minister, they sacrifice to God, there is this cleansing event that has to occur. Okay? Now, there's another verse. Let me see if I put it up here. Nope. Did that picture give you a hint of the next story of cleansing? Okay, good. So well, I'm going to read one more verse. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. And be thinking about the next story, okay? I like to quiz um, my friends. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8 and 9. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. So this is, as you know, in Hebrews, there's this very big theme of the tabernacle's application to us in this day. So in Hebrews, speaking of the Old Testament tabernacle, it says the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So it's saying when the first tabernacle was up, you know, the path into the most holy place, spiritually speaking, was not all the way complete. And we keep reading which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So that's just, that, that verse is just to bring, us to bring to our mind the fact that the things that happened as part of the sacrificial service, as part of the tabernacle service, have relevance in the daily life of a Christian living today. So when we read about in the Old Testament how the priests would prepare themselves by cleansing of water, by putting away their sins with water, that has relevance in how you and I prepare to approach God today and now. All right, so next story. And this, is, this, is story, this story is the one in which water is, is used most like baptism in the Old Testament. Does the picture give you an idea? What's his name? Naaman, Naaman yes. So I, I tried to make the slides have an old art theme to them. So Naaman is the next story that, in which water is, is very interestingly used as uh, a cleansing mechanism. 2 Kings 5, 10 to 14 is kind of the story where Elijah um, is, is sought after in order to be healed. Uh, verse 14, then he went down and he dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman is suffering a disease that is afflicting him physically. Um, we can tell from the verse that it has a, it has a skin manifestation, which I'm sure was very painful, um, torturous for him. Um, and when he approaches God through his servant Elijah, Elisha, God's response says, I want you to be cleansed. He uses water as a mechanism by which he is cleansed. And when the man goes down into the water... And he comes up after being faithful to the, the instructions that were given him. He rises to a new experience. There's new hope for his future. He can look to, you know, to, to physical evidence that his life has been made new. A very similar concept, very similar theme. So these are just kind of very brief examples. It's not exhaustive by any means. But the point I'm trying to make in order for us to really talk about baptism is that when a Jewish person 
in the time of Jesus, sees John the Baptist baptizing, hears Jesus calling for baptism, sees the apostle baptizing later on in, in, in their career, they are not seeing just a ritual that you take place in order to join a church, in order to join a group, not just a ritual in order to make God happy with you. They have in, them, in their minds a rich history of what it means to be cleansed by water. And so, in other words, when they see baptism, when they hear about baptism, and when Jesus is speaking about baptism, he expects this water, this, this cleansing moment to actually have an impact in the life of that person, not just at that moment, but for time to come. So there's significance to what we should expect from a baptismal experience. And interestingly, when you look at all these stories put together, there's always a pre-baptism condition and a post-baptism condition that seem to be very different, right? Because before, you know, we saw suffering, we saw oppression, we saw sin, we saw disease. And these were the things that made a person seek after an experience of baptism. Baptism is then given by God as his answer to the need of cleansing. And then the person emerges from that experience having a new life and a new hope for the future. So in a sense, it's kind of like, and we all know this, you know, if anyone of you has, been, has had baptism described to them, it's most often described as a new birth experience, yes or no? You know, I, I, that's what I was taught when I went into baptism. I was taught, you know, this is where you die to your old self and you are born again unto Christ. And so let's look, think of the book of John and think of an instance in which a man is told that he has to be born again. Who is he? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, very good. Nicodemus chapter 3, so go with me there. Nicodemus is being described an experience that, as we have seen, sounds very similar to this water cleansing slash baptism experience. And John chapter 3, John chapter 3, let me see if I can get this forward. Looks like it. There we go, Nicodemus. Anyhow, John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he's saying, you have sought me because you felt a need in your heart. My answer to you is you need to be born again. Nicodemus does not understand what that means. How does Jesus clarify what born again means? Being born through water and the Spirit. And this is language that sounds very much like a baptism experience. Let's see if there's a connection. Now, Jesus, this is not the last time that Jesus speaks of baptism, obviously. And the next time that he does, he makes a connection that wasn't made before. And so for that, we're going to go to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 16. And go ahead and look up that one with me. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 to 16. It's a very well-known verse. It says, go into all the world and preach what? the gospel, to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
What, what new connection is Jesus making between baptism and the gospel? This is the first time in which he most directly says that in order for a person to experience full salvation, he needs a baptism experience. This, this wasn't the case before. Now, after Jesus goes to heaven, there's another instance that we all know. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You might be able to quote this from memory. Then Peter said, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this kind of ties together some the, the two previous verses that we've listened to. Jesus, first of all, says that you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Then he goes on to say that in order for a person to experience full salvation, he needs to have a baptism experience. And finally, Paul, I mean Peter connects us together by saying that a person that is repentant can experience remission of sin and what? Something new. There's a second thing that they will receive. The gift of the Holy Spirit. A second thing that is added to the experience of baptism in this New Testament passage. So in summary, basically, being born again is required for salvation. Or maybe not, it's, it's a part of the process of salvation. The baptism experience is a symbol, an example of that, being, of that born again experience. And that experience brings in itself two things. One, remission of sin. Number two, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, you know, and this is something that we all talk about in our Bible studies, um, what is one of the biggest reasons that we should baptize today? And that's usually whenever you see the evangelistic series, the biggest reason is almost always because Jesus gave us the example. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a, like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this is one of our most clear examples of baptism, you know, being submerged in the water, being born again, seeing the Holy Spirit come, come down. Jesus leaves, us at, leaves it as an example kind of like this textbook example of what baptism should look like today. Nevertheless, you know, we've kind of covered very briefly some of the basic verses of what baptism means both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But now we really kind of have to talk about what it means. And this is where I think it gets interesting. You know, at its essence, baptism is a very simple concept. You know, you have a person in need you have a person that is suffering, you have a sinner. The sinner meets God. God's answer to the sinner is, I want to give you a new experience. I want to give you a new start. This new start involves the remission of sin. It involves the descending of the Holy Spirit. It involves a person being a new creature, a new creation at the very end of this all. But if you, if you and this is, this is what makes it personal for me, because I know when I was baptized, I was 12 years old, and I had a good life. I was a good kid. There was no particular urgency for me to get baptized. It was just a thing to do at the right time 
I felt like it was a good idea, and it was a blessing to me. Nevertheless, every single time you read and hear about baptism in the scriptures, it is always, always a result of a pleading soul, of a desirous heart, a heart in need, a heart that is repentant and, and, and suffering for the effects of the sin and the suffering around them. And it's interesting to me because whenever you see Jesus offering a solution to someone, he's always offering it to the people that need it the most. Haven't you noticed that? He comes to the woman at the well and he offers water because he can tell that she is suffering inside, his, inside her heart, that she has a great need that no one has been able to meet, no one has been able to identify, and he provides everlasting water. Then he goes to the, to the Israelites. They're at the point in which they're surrounded by uncrossable land with an army bigger than themselves behind, nowhere else to go, led there by God himself, feeling like they have no more recourse. And God says, I have a water in front of you that I will part and I will use to rid you of your sin and your oppressors. And when we think of Naaman, he was a man who had also used his money, used his influence, used everything he had to find solutions to his problem. And yet, it wasn't until he came before God and humbled himself enough to do this thing that seemed ridiculous, that seemed nonsensical, that God was finally able to say, hey, I'm going to do this miracle for you. And so that is why, my friends, I believe that the experience that occurs before baptism is just as much a part of the actual, as, as the actual experience. When you think of a wedding, for example, a wedding is very special. It's a, it's a very memorable event. But what makes a wedding special is not so much the wedding, but the relationship building that came before, that culminated in this moment where these two people are able to declare their love for each other. And so this made me think, okay, so what does baptism mean to Jesus? Whenever I think of baptism in Jesus, what event do we think of? Being baptized in the Jordan River. But if you really think about it, what, what, did, what did that baptism mean to him? And for that, I want to go to the book of... Actually, I did not write the, the reference for this. Um, I'm just going to read this passage, and trust me that it's from Scripture. <laughs> so it says... But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? You know who, who is talking here. It's the two disciples that are wanting to sit on his right hand and on his left. And Jesus is answering to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. There is so much in this verse that we need to talk about. When we talk about what baptism means to Jesus, the reason that is important is because what baptism means to Jesus should be what baptism means to us. And a lot of times we think that what baptism meant to Jesus was that event that occurred in Jordan and that it was an example for us and we should do it so to be an example for others. But that is not the reason why we should be baptized and the, the reason why we should, or the way that we should look at baptism. 
What did baptism really mean for Jesus? In this verse, one of the first lessons that we can gather from here is that a new birth, a, a, a healing, a restoration, salvation, all these things that God provides to his people, these things are not free. So let's think about this for a moment. Everything that God has accomplished for you and I, every opportunity, every hope for a future that he has provided for you and I has been bought with the ultimate price. And so when God says, or when Jesus says, I am to be baptized, and, and I'm not sure that you can be baptized with a baptism that I am going to be baptized. He's talking about a moment of suffering, a moment in which he had to experience the most excruciating suffering that any human ha has ever experienced. And this is where we go into the, the, the verse that we used as our scripture reading today. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. Or do you not know that as many as were, as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So in order for us to kind of bring all this together, the first thing that I want to say, I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm hoping that as we go along, we'll be able to, to you'll be able to understand and, and, and see why I said what I said. But I honestly believe that the purpose of baptism is not just the benefit that you reap from that new life on that day in which you were baptized. I was baptized April 12, 2012. I was 12 years old. There's a lot of 12s in that number. And like I said, at that moment, I did not have a pressing need for a new birth experience. I did not have a yearning and a, a, a pleading for that new birth experience. So, Based on what I've said about baptism earlier today, or earlier in this message, what benefit do you think I reaped from my baptismal experience? Maybe some of you here had a similar experience to I. You were baptized fairly young. You were born in the church. You, know, you, you lived good, normal lives, and there was no intense need for a baptism experience. You were baptized, and you still treasure that moment as a special one, but what benefit did you or I get from that experience? Can some, and this is, this is something that has bothered me for a very long time. And when I, when I would think about that moment, I would, I would look at it with, with good memories. It was special. But I would try to quantify what benefit did I get from that experience? Because I know, I know that before I was looking forward to this moment because I, 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 would, I was expecting this, this magical change in my heart. And as, as I'm sure my sister knows, I went on to be the exact same young guy as I was before my baptism. And this is, I'm, I'm going to make, make a case for this, and that is that I believe that the purpose of baptism, oh, let me rephrase that. I believe that baptism is a tool for Christian living that is useful on a day day basis. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why. Before, we, before I do, I think we're going to have to use an illustration. And this is an illustration from evidence-based medicine, um, which is a concept where in healthcare, when we make decisions, 
You know, we have to be able to give rationale for why we make decisions. There's, there's a science of medicine and there's the art of medicine. And a lot of times, physicians operate in the art where they just do what they feel is right. In some cases, they're right. In some cases, there's no evidence for the decisions that they make. But the, the, the goal is always to make decisions that are evidence-based. So when you study evidence-based medicine, it's basically statistics, right? Um, you, you, make, you do studies, you do randomized control trials, you do cohort studies, you do all these different things to find out. You have groups of people, this, there's something different about this group, something different about this group, you follow them to see what happens, et cetera, et cetera. So in this example, I would like to suggest to you that the history of salvation, the history of this world, is kind of like a prospective cohort study. So let me explain what that means. Cohort is just another word for a group of people. Prospective means that you are looking forward in time. So when you have a prospective cohort study, I'm going to make an illustration. This is going to be my group number one. This is going to be group number two. And what you do is, let's say we're going to evaluate whether um, people that come early to church versus keep people that come late to church have any change in terms of their satisfaction 10 years from now um, in their spiritual lives. So you have these group of people coming early to church every single, every single Sabbath. This people is going to come to church late every single Sabbath, and you follow them for 10 years, right? After 10 years, then you look at both of them and see how, were, how was their spiritual lives? You know, how are they satisfied with their with their experience uh, at church, et cetera, et cetera. This is just you know, a random example of how a prospective cohort study functions. In some cases, you actually have interventions where you know, and one group is given something, one group is not. You, you kind of get the idea, right, what a prospective cohort study is. So think about it this way. In the very beginning, we know from Job that Satan accused God of being an unjust God. In that very beginning, in, in that moment, we know that God's kingdom is ruled by one principle, and that is unselfish love. Unselfish love defines the way God's kingdom works in every single possible imaginable way. Everything that God does is founded on the idea of unselfish love, right? Can you agree with me on that? Yes. yes. Okay. Now, Satan comes along, and he says... I don't, I don't think you're just. I actually think that the way that you are wanting us to live is unjust because you're wanting us to work and live and do things for someone else. And Satan says, I posit, I, I suggest that actually the best way to live is to live for yourself. Okay? Now, for you and I here, how easy would it be to make that decision? It's easy. It says... We know that if you live unselfishly for other people, you will be happier. I'm sure most of us will agree with that, right? But imagine a world in which that has not been actually seen in practice. And so Satan is suggesting this, accusing God of being unjust and actually being self-serving. Because if you can imagine, you know, God is above everyone, and he is making this, 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 this principle that everyone should live for someone else, you would think that eventually all of that attention would come to him. So Satan is saying, oh, he's actually being selfish, and he's extracting all of our energy and our attention that we could be using to serve ourselves. So God's, you know, God's only 
only answer to this, he can't say, I'm sorry, you're wrong. The right thing is unselfish love. Why? Because that would not be evidence-based. There's no evidence to support what he says. And if he did something like that, he would actually be proving, in a way, the argument that Satan is making. So what is God's only, only option? He has to make a prospective cohort trial or a prospective cohort study. And so there is this new world in which God's people, this new creation, Adam and Eve, they are given a choice. God doesn't want to place anyone in the cohort of living for yourself, selfish living. He won't place anyone there. But he gives Satan the option to ask people to make the choice of which cohort they want to be in. And we know, unfortunately, that when Adam and Eve chose to live for themselves and live for their own pleasure, they were placed where? In the cohort of selfish living or, or living for yourself. Now, there's something really interesting about how evidence-based trials work, and that is you can't be switching sides. You can't be switching cohorts. Why? Because the moment somebody from this cohort switches to this cohort, all my data is ruined. So when a person decides which cohort they want to be in, which group they want to be in, they are stuck there for the rest of their lives. Because evidence is needed to be able to see if God is actually true when he says that unselfish living is what needs to happen, or if Satan is right in saying that God is unjust and that we should live for ourselves. And that is the only way that the universe is able to know and say, we reject Satan's claims and he can be put away forever. So you can imagine the dilemma that God finds himself in, where he has this growing number of his children who have no choice but to live in a model that has proven itself to be one of suffering, one of death, one of oppression, one in which his creation cannot thrive, one in which death reigns supreme. Can you imagine the pain that that would cause somebody to know that this is what is necessary to prove that his model of unselfish love is what should reign? And so God says, this, is, this can't be. I cannot allow these cohorts to run for eternity until we can finally have enough data to show what the true result of sin and selfishness is. So what does he do? He comes into this life. He comes as, as Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb. And I want you to really make this connection in your mind. I'm hoping that you can see what I'm seeing. When Jesus comes here on earth, in a way, baptism is his main goal. Why? In that moment, Jesus when he's, when he's about to die, when he's about to be crucified, he is taking upon himself every sin, every life that has ever lived. Every single person that has been born, that has chosen to be on Satan's cohort, he has taken upon themselves their life, their sin, the gravity of what that means, and the destiny of it. And when he goes to the cross, the thing that kills him is the weight of every life and every sin that has ever been committed. And so that is why when Jesus dies, he doesn't die like you and I do. He dies a death that is so eternal that only Jesus could have a chance or the possibility of coming back. 
And so the reason why that is so important is because in Jesus' sacrifice, in Jesus' death, since he has every single life on himself, he is able to take every life in the cohort and demonstrate what the end result is unequivocally, without doubt. And that is why he's able to say, because of his death, you and I have the choice to switch cohorts. Because now in his, in his death, we have the evidence that we need in order to know what the end result is of a life lived selfishly. And in his earthly life, we have all the evidence we need to know the results of a life lived unselfishly. And so if you think about it, baptism, baptism, as we read before, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized unto Christ, were baptized unto his death? When we are baptized, it's not just about the ritual. It is we are actually joining our lives. We are adding our lives to the weight of evidence in Jesus Christ to show this is the result of living in Satan's cohort. Ultimate death, complete death, no hope for the future. And yet when we join Jesus in that death, we allow ourselves to die in the waters and to be born again to a new life. It is an added drop of evidence to the claim that Jesus is just, that unselfish living is the only way in which the universe can be happy and that everyone can live in harmony. And what does that mean? It means that you and I today, you and I today can actually live lives free of the, uh, of the obligation to a, a Satan's cohort because every day we have the opportunity of choosing which cohort we are a part of. And see, this is why I was saying earlier that I honestly believe that the purpose of baptism is not just this one event, but actually a tool for daily Christian living. Why? Because every single day, Satan is going to come to you and he's going to make an appeal to his cohort. He's going to say, I want you to live for yourself today. I want, the, I want you to follow your own desires today. I don't want you to have to really stress about what God cares or what somebody else might be going through or any other appeal of unselfishness. But he's, he wants you to believe that Looking out for yourself is your number one priority. Furthermore, he's going to lay a claim of you and saying, you chose to be in my cohort. You chose a life of unselfishness. What other tool do we have but baptism to tell Satan, I died with Jesus. My life is an added drop to the evidence that I want to live unselfishly. I want to live following Jesus. I want to live a life of sacrifice. And all the weight of Jesus' sacrifice, all the weight of his baptism, all the weight of his life shows the universe that we can end this great experiment and that we can live in a way that is unselfish and that the universe can have harmony at the end. It reminds me of that, that story in the Old Testament where 
serpents were biting and, and, and killing Israelites. And Jesus had to become a serpent himself. He had to become the great experiment where he took upon himself all of the sin, all of the evil that was causing this scourge. And it was by looking to him, by seeing his sacrifice, by looking at his example that somebody would be able to live now then, at, at that time. And so it is today, my friends. I want to encourage you to see your own baptismal experience not just as a beautiful or nice memory of the past, but actually a tool that you can use every single day to present before Satan, present before God, to present before your own mind as evidence that you are part of Jesus' cohort and that because of that, you can choose today to live for him. And so I, my prayer is that baptism would actually be useful to you. And, if by, and if, if by chance you are someone who has not made that choice, I hope that this would be an encouragement that baptism doesn't just have to be this funky ritual that Christians do sometimes, but it is actually a tool that gives us the confidence to walk and move forward in faith, knowing that God's sacrifice is enough. All right, why don't we go ahead and kneel for prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I... I want to thank you so much because you made this amazing rescue operation to allow us the freedom, the choice to choose you after so many years, Father, where Satan's claims bore over us. And I want to ask that you would teach us how to every day surrender to your sacrifice, believe in the sacrifice that you made for us, and that because of that, we would have the confidence in facing evil, knowing that you are enough and that you're by our side. I ask that you would teach us to value that baptismal experience that we had, if that, is, if that is part of our story. And if not, Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts as to whether or not we should consider that experience anew in our lives. And I ask that you would continue working in the hearts of everyone here present. Bless the rest of the Sabbath day, I pray, in your son's name. Amen.